first key to culture is measure it and manage it like it's important. And most companies don't. And if you can't, I mean, we're big believers, we're data-driven, right? And so culture can be this like nebulous thing. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Jasper Weir. How you doing, man? Hey, Eric. I'm doing great. How are you? Good, man. Good to have you. So got to start it from the beginning. I assume, you know, you're born, you're immediately helping people outsource to the Philippines. You're like, this is it. Like, listen, this hospital won't do. We got to get some people in the Philippines, get some people in South America. We can get a lot more cost effective here, right? From the yeah. get-go. It's been a childhood dream of mine to run an international outsourcing company. For sure. Yeah, 100%. Posters on your walls of, yeah. I don't know what that would be, but the icons of the industry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to take it back, like, start off, where are you from? I'm from Los Angeles, grew up in West, West LA, went to Santa Monica High. Um, yeah. So it was, was LA through and through until I moved uh, to Austin about five years ago. Nice. And so tell me about your childhood, like growing up, how were your parents? Were they there? Were they pushing you to do stuff? Like, what was that like? Yeah, I have two younger brothers who I grew up with, an older half-sister and half-brother as well, but it was really uh, the five of us, my, my two brothers and I, and my parents. And we were, were, were three boys, like textbook three boys. We were uh, certainly a handful, sports all the time, super, super competitive vying for our parents' attention and just trying to beat each other at everything. We were also super close in age. So actually the three of us were in high school at the same time. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but we're, we're, we, um, look, we're, we're lucky. We come from a, a really loving household. Um, we were encouraged to try things and stick with things growing up. And what kind of things were those? Were, like what sports, what were you kind of into? So we played soccer, baseball, basketball. I mean, football, pretty much like everything. Uh, I played golf in high school. I did a lot of skiing and snowboarding as I got older. And so really kind of developed my love for, for both team sports and individual sports for, for separate reasons, but um, have, all, have always loved, loved sports and as have my brothers. And so that had a big impact on our, on our childhood for sure. Uh, we definitely encouraged to, to focus on, on good grades. Um, I remember, you know, my dad half jokingly, if I came home with a for the test and got a 96%, he'd say, what, what, what about the other 4%? So um, <laughs> we, we, we uh, but it was like, it was, it was a very loving, supportive household. So I got to say, I love that. Cause again, I, we talked about this before that there's not really, I've found a lot of consistency among success, but I was talking to Patrick Schwarzenegger about his upbringing because his dad, Arnold pushed him and his, his dad's line apparently is whenever they're out to like a nice dinner or they're on vacation in Sun Valley, et cetera. He looks at him and he goes, you know, while you're all relaxing here, someone's working, someone's in the library, someone's going to beat you. Like it's that having that from a parent actually does help that little extra push that more than you would push yourself. Yeah, to totally. So that, that, that was certainly a good influence and um, it made a difference as an entrepreneur when we went out and decided to do our own thing. Yeah, got it. And so what was early, like early entrepreneurship? Did you, were you the lemonade stand guy in you know, elementary school? Like what, did you do little side businesses as you were growing up? But more, more or less, I mean, um, early on, not as much, but Bryce, my co-founder and Tasca CEO, Bryce and I, we've been business partners since we were 17 years old. So we, we started our first business in high school. So it was just kind of like always, always in our blood. 
So what was that in high school? What were you guys doing? So in high school, we had a very short stint selling women's belts. And we, we don't know a lot about belts and, and certainly not a lot about women. And so that, that business failed pretty fast. How did that, I'm curious how that, where, where the nascent of that was. Like, why did you decide on women's belts? Oh, I had, um, I had like met somebody, met a, a girl at a camp and met her friend back in New Jersey who was making these belts. And I was like, hey, I can be your West Coast distributor. I thought that was a really nice uh, way, way, way to put it. And so we started distributing her belts for, for, for about a month. But that, so that, that was really the first business. But for Bryce and I, our, our first real business started uh, our freshman year, after our freshman year of college, I went to, we both went to Santa Monica High School together. I went to USC and Bryce went to NYU. And we had this idea that um, during the summer, kids who are, you know, 14 to 18 years old, say, in Los Angeles, really don't have a lot to do. And LA has this, you know, robust nightlife available to kind of 21 and over a crowd. But if you're under, there's not really anything to do. And kids have nothing to do in the summers. And so we figured out that we could go rent out nightclubs in Hollywood on like a Monday night that weren't making as much money. And as long as we served food as well, they had licenses to serve underage. And so we didn't serve any alcohol, but we started these parties where we would host hundreds of high school age kids. We both had younger brothers and kind of still were so close to it that we yep. built this kind of you know experience for a really like safe, fun experience for teenagers. And, uh, and that was the business that we we started and, and, and ran during college. And by, by doing that, we didn't, we didn't have to get college jobs. It was, it was really fun. We, we would kind of, I mean, it was, it was a, it, we worked really hard at it, um, setting this all up, but you know, the, they became quite successful. We, we just show up on, on Monday nights. We'd make more money in one night than our friends would all summer. And they thought we were crazy for trying this, but our, <laughs> our, again, back to our parents, our parents believed in us and we're like, we have no idea how this works, but you know, go for it. And so that, that actually, that business taught us a lot about creating experience, taught us a lot about culture and, and ultimately gave us uh, the seed capital to start task us. Did. Okay. And so curious, why not continue with that business? Like what, you know, a lot of times you have this thing that's making you the, you know, way more money than your peers. You don't just go, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go do something else now. Yeah, we, we knew it was a great business to, to do when you were 19, 20 and in yep. college. We also saw kind of the ceiling. Neither of us had an interest in actually being in the nightlife uh, or hospitality space. Uh, yep. I knew we wanted to do something much bigger. And so uh, we, we, we kind of made a conscious decision like, hey, we do not want to go down this road. We love it for what it is and learn, learn a lot from it, but, but had, had kind of our sights set on something different. Got it. And so you're graduating college and somehow get into outsourcing. And I kind of do know the story, but I want you to talk about like, you guys took a trip or something, right? Yeah. So, you know, we actually, so, so the idea, Bryce was investment banking in New York during my senior year and he graduated early. Got it. And, and I, um, I called him one day after I had studied abroad in Argentina and I had this idea and I said, I called Bryce and I was like, Hey, you should quit your six figure investment banking job. So I got this great business idea. We should go move to Argentina when I graduate and we'll go open fro- we'll go open a frozen yogurt shop. <laughs> that was so that was the idea. Shooting for the moon. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, frozen yogurt empire starting with one with one shop. Yep. We I had wanted just to move back to Argentina because I, I love living there so much and we thought it'd be a fun place to start a business. We wrote this like, you know, super long business plan. We went down on a trip there to go 
meet chemists to kind of mix our flavors and talk to real estate scouts to see where we wanted to open our first store. Yeah, we were like serious about moving down there and doing this. And then we kind of like took a step back, had a couple of sobering conversations with a couple of local entrepreneurs there as well, and took a step back and kind of realized like, hey, if we want to try to build wealth in going down to the volatile Argentine economy and then coming back to live in dollars seemed, seemed to be a, a not a smart strategy overall. And so we decided to kind of pull the plug on that idea. But in that process, we said, all right, well, as simple as this sounds, how can we take advantage of the global marketplace and say, how can we pay for things in pesos and charge dollars? And that's really what got us thinking about business services. And because this was 2008 and obviously broadband and the proliferation of high-speed internet was was well uh, on its way, we said, there's going to be all sorts of services popping up that are going to leverage the globe. And so uh, at the time, uh, Tim Ferriss had written uh, The 4-Hour Workweek, which was a super popular book that I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, and kind of you know talks about this idea of a virtual assistant, a personal virtual assistant that's overseas somewhere. And he, he kind of romanticizes this idea a bit, but he, he romanticized the idea so much to us that we said, hey, there's going to be a lot of people that need this type of service. And so we're going to go start it. And that was the that was the start of Taskus uh, 13 years ago. And so, did you know where you wanted? Did you start with Argentina? Was that where your first people were? Yeah, that's what we thought. We thought we'd be in Argentina, but we and then we said, all right, well, we should we should not just limit ourselves to Argentina. We should look around the globe, and that's when we started testing different service providers from all over the globe. And through that, we found the Philippines, and we really loved the people we were working with in the Philippines for a variety of reasons, but like really great English, really kind of great customer service type skills, super friendly, really smart and hardworking. And and that's how we decided to make our first country of operations in the Philippines. Got it. And so did you guys go out there immediately? like, Or did you just have a service provider that you found went, great, let's start selling a couple of people and see how this goes? Like, What was the nascent of it? Yeah, we started with like one virtual assistant through through another service provider. And we're like, okay, we think we like the Philippines. And we just started like talking to people we were kind of meeting online. And we had talked to uh, to, to somebody there who we liked a lot because he was a doctor. And so we thought he was really smart and he spoke perfect English. And he kind of convinced us. He's like, you, you know, I can open an office for you. I can open an office for you. I got a great location picked out. And if you wired me a bunch of money, I'll go open this office for you. And, uh, and it was about $10,000. And for us, that was all the money we had left. At this point, we were living at home with our parents and, you know, Bryce coming from making six figures in, in New York yeah. to back to Santa Monica was not happy. I didn't know any better. So I was living at home with, with my parents. But, uh, but anyways, we didn't have enough money to go out to the Philippines and spend money to open an office. So we had to just blindly kind of trust this guy, which looking back, it was a very, very <laughs> dumb decision. But it worked out and he went and opened an office that the great location he spoke of just happened to be next to his house. So it was just convenient, there you go. but actually turned out to be a, a really strategic area for us. So we went, you know, Why was it strategic? What was strategic about it? You know, it was just outside of, of the major city, Manila, right? Yeah. And so most of our competitors operated in Manila. Nobody really operated outside the city. Yeah. And that actually um, has turned out to be an amazing strategy for us. We've located a lot of our sites outside of the major metropolitan areas because there's less competition, wages are lower, people are generally happier because they don't have to travel an hour and a half each way into the city. 
and the talents there. And it was really only at that time as broadband was being rolled out in areas like the ones that we started in, that this became a possibility. And, yeah. so, and now it's, it's, uh, it's kind of been a constant in, in our location strategy. So that was kind of the first thing we went, you know, and had an office. I mean, this thing, Eric was, we have pictures of it. It's, uh, it's on a highway outside of Manila. And there's this like tiny little building above a mechanic shop that was like some weird little like uh, grade school. And we took one space that was probably, you know, 300 square feet and had yeah. five people working there on little crappy desks. And, and then, uh, and that was kind of, that was the, the start of Task Us as a virtual assistant company. And so virtual assistants where you started, was it, you, did you go off after executives and people that needed virtual assistants? Like what was the first sales aspect of it? Yeah, the first, we, we, we went after individuals. So, yeah. you know, small business owners, executives, really anyone that would pay us. I remember times I literally cold called the Chamber of Commerce directory myself and just yep. was cold, cold calling random people, trying to get them to sign up for our service. Not, not a very good scalable customer acquisition tool, but that's what we were doing at the time. And keep in mind, this is 2008. Right? Yeah, you got to get started. Yeah, bad time. <laughs> bad. Th this is like nobody spending money on anything. So that was, yeah, it was, uh, and we're, we're, and picture, I mean, we're 22 years old, right? With zero experience. So, so yeah. we literally had no idea what we were doing. And how did it go right away? I mean, I get, get all that, but did you get some customers right away at least? Or did it, was it kind of like, uh-oh, what are we doing? We got a few customers, but it, but it, did, it did not go well. <laughs> we, we, I mean, we were making maybe a few thousand dollars a month in revenue, not not paying ourselves yeah. a lot of unhappy customers. Cause that model is really challenging mm -hmm. and it doesn't scale very well. So no, it, it sucked. It was a, it was a pretty bad service. I mean, the only good part was, you know, bright, like often Bryce and I would do, would do the work ourselves. And <laughs> so that was a pretty, that was a pretty good deal for most people. I mean, we, we think, we think we're, we're, we think we're worth $10 an hour. And so, uh, so, so in that way, uh, it was a good product market fit, but it just was, was not scalable and didn't make any money. And so at what point did you go, like, was there a shift in that or like, at what point did you go, okay, this isn't working or did it just click somewhere? What was kind of the yeah. inspection point? Well, we, we kept trying, we kept trying, took a couple of years and we just weren't making much money. And oh, then, so you, did, um, you had a couple of years of the virtual assistant side of things. Yeah. I mean, at least, at least, you know, over a year, it was probably end of 2009 or so, 2009 and early 2010, where we got our first kind of enterprise client. And that's somebody both of us know, uh, J Jamie Siminoff. Um, oh, yeah. who, who went on to start uh, Ring, which yeah. sold to, to Amazon, the, the, the video doorbell and security, now security company. At the time, he was the CEO and founder of a company called PhoneTag, which allowed you, uh, if you subscribe to the service, to receive your voice messages as an email. And it seemed like it was just technology that was you know, using IVR to transcribe. And, uh, and really, it was, it was some technology, but it was really people. And so... Jamie, we had met through a friend, friends old. He's a he's a friend of our friend's older brother, and we had met him at some event. And he, uh, we knew he had some operations in the Philippines. And long story short, we we built a relationship with him. And he said, "Hey, we had maybe five people at the time." And he goes, "Hey, can you guys have a hundred people working in you know in, in in sixty days?" And we said, "Yeah, sure. No, of course you can. No problem." Yeah. That's what you uh, say. <laughs> yeah. And then we turned around and we're like, how do we do this? We don't have enough money to buy computers and 
all this kind of stuff, but we worked through it with Jamie. He was, I mean, I mean, the, the, he was really the reason that we were even able to start that business. And uh -huh. so we go, we go overnight from doing kind of virtual assistant work to being like, whoa, we've got a hundred people doing the same process for one company over and over and over. This is a lot easier and actually makes money. Yeah. That makes sense. And so did that come up as just like, oh, we do this virtual assistant thing? He's like, oh, I need people in the Philippines. Can you guys help me out? Like, is it yeah, really he, just that casual of a... We had people in the Philippines. He already was using people in the Philippines, needed more, wanted to take a shot on us. We were going to give him a great commercial model to make it worth his while too. And yeah. so it really, it was, it was him taking a shot on us and doing everything that we possibly could to make it work. Got it. And so once that hit off the races did you just start trying to replicate that and hitting up other company like how what was the next step of that i mean i assume yeah, so yeah exactly right it was like okay this works who else can we do this for and, and that was 2010 you said right yeah 2009 2010 exactly you know okay. over 10 years ago so uh, economy is still in a really bad place but you finally start to see some money flowing into venture capital at that time right and you uh -huh. start seeing the companies that we know of today that are big public enterprises starting to be built. Now, we didn't really work with some of those companies at first. No, nobody would take us seriously, but there was a lot of small startups. And we, rather than, and we, and we also, we looked around, right? In our industry, we looked, we were just in the Philippines. We looked around and we said, who are we competing with for talent? And it was kind of these traditional like call center businesses. Yep. And they had like really bad cultures. They weren't differentiated. Their big clients were like big telcos and banks. And we, we just were kind of scratching our head and saying like, you know, this doesn't make sense. Like I, we don't understand why these are such bad jobs with such high attrition. These people in the Philippines are amazing. They love the work that we're, that we're doing if, and we just treat them like people. Right. And so we kind of took that philosophy on the operation side and the culture side. And then on the other side, we said, look, we don't want to go work for AT&T and Verizon. Well, we, I don't think they, we could have landed them as customers anyways. <laughs> but we said, we do know, right? We were in Santa Monica. We kind of identified ourselves as startup founders. And we just like went to people that we knew in the startup world and just started, you know, telling our story as much as we could and saying, hey, we've, we've got these people in the Philippines. We do like really whatever you need. Like, what, what can we help you with? And yeah. It was those conversations and finding client number two and then number three. And do you remember uh, who number two was? Number two was a customer at the time was called Visible Technologies. They're no longer around, but they were they were a social listening tool, kind of like a Radian Six or yep. today like a Sprout Social kind of kind of tool. And they needed. It's funny you see you'll see a theme here in our early customers. Yeah. They had this this tool, this premium tool for their clients, where they could listen to the sentiment. Right. So Twitter had just come out and for extra, for an extra purchase, for extra money, they would evaluate all of the tweets about your company and tell you, you know, is it positive sentiment, negative yeah. or mixed, whatever. Again, you think it's, it's kind of, you, you, you would think that this is machine learning, but it was just people. And we were just uh, literally rating all these Twitter posts and comments and blogs for their brands. And so that was client, that was client number two. And then from there it was, uh, and that was a decent size engagement for us at the time as and well. I think it's, it's funny you bring these up because it was such a trend in the sort of teens to the 2010s of like tech facade, but actually executed by people. Yeah. Fake it till you make it. And yeah. I mean, those things still happen today. Oh yeah. hundred percent. But uh, yeah, but then, and, and the whole idea, and this is still a big part of our business is actually creating the data sets that are then used for end, end application in real time, but right. also create this kind of data exhaust 
that's used to perfect these algorithms. These algorithms have just gotten more and more complex in the past 10 years, but we were kind of early stage in, in, in helping to provide some of that data that powered some of the services. You know, same thing for companies who were transcribing receipts right? Like yep. you get your app and oh my God, like magic by my, in two minutes, my, my receipts transcribed, but then you're like, wait, why does that take two minutes? That's because it's being sent overseas. You have somebody typing it in themselves. That's not OCR. That's somebody, you know, sitting in the Philippines doing that. So, so a lot of our early work was kind of the man behind the machine, if you will. That's cool. And so I remember meeting you guys around that time. I met you in 2012 with Ellie and talking about outsourcing our customer service with you guys. And we weren't quite big enough, but I remember coming to meeting with you guys at the Santa Monica airport. And I know there was a point not that long after that, where you pivoted and you were like, we're not doing little, you know, one person, two person customer service teams for e-commerce companies. Like that was a channel you looked at, doesn't sound like it was ever a big channel for you guys. And then you kind of adjusted, where was that kind of decision inflection where you're like, we're going to start like, I know you, you got some massive customer at some point in like 2013, 14, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we started growing. Um, we had a relationship early on uh, with, with Uber and that kind of exploded for us, right? We started with a small team and and, and that grew really, really fast. And so we just realized that we would need to take on kind of bigger engagements uh, over time. So we kind of raised our minimums and raised our minimums. Mm-hmm. Actually to a point though, where we said, hold on, we, we actually are kind of missing out on startups and some of the things that have made it successful in many ways, we're like a, we're like a VC where we're going in and taking bets on small companies. Plus yeah. we, we just, we love working with early stage companies. We love the passion. We love kind of like where, where they're at in their, in their life cycle. And we want to be early partners. And so we actually, uh, re, we, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, we, we relaunched something we call Task Us Launch, which allows us to take on smaller teams of just a few people. It's a little bit different operating service model that, that allows the, 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 the customer to really work with us. And we provide all the handholding and some of the kind of tools that they may need at that stage to do nice. you know, customer support or that sort of thing. So we do have a product now that, that, we, that we use with smaller stage startups, but, but a lot of our work today is really with uh, companies that have been with us for some years. And so some of them started as kind of growth stage companies and are now public massive enterprises. And, and the, the bulk of our customers today are really, really large consumer internet businesses. And so the Uber relationship, how did that kick off? Was it just they were in LA in the beginning and you got introduced to them in the entrepreneurial scene or where did that come from? Yeah, 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 pretty much. And we started doing some work in, in the LA office and we did good work. We, we held on, we competed for, for, for more work over time and just kind of worked up the, the value chain there. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was a great, it was a great partnership and continues to be today. When I think a key part there that people glaze over is you guys delivered too. Like you've kept these relationships, not because of accident or anything, but because you guys did a great job and they don't have a better alternative because it's business. If they had something else they wanted to go with, they'd do it. Yeah, relationships are really important, really important, but only on the back of, of solid operations and delivery. Right. Yeah, exactly. A relationship to your point, relationship doesn't matter if you're not if you don't if you're not bringing the table stakes. Once yep. you bring the table stakes, the relationship really helps you understand the needs of your customers. Right. And like getting insight into, hey, where where are you going with your business? How are we doing for you? What else do you wish we would do? Like, how can we be better? Those sort of things I think are really helpful. And we do build relationships like that with the customer, but the customer doesn't want to talk about what else we can be doing for them when what we're doing for them isn't going well. And so step one is just delivering on your commitments. And that's something that is, you know, remains true to this day. Yep. 
Totally. And so what was the kind of next phase? So, it, you know, you, you start getting all these enterprise clients, as you said, like, it, it, was it easy to scale where you're just like, all right, we just need more office space and more people. Like, we're just going to grow into this. It was, was there a point where you got a little over your skis? Yeah, I mean, so like, let's like to 2015 or so. Yeah, 2015, we raised our first round of outside capital. We were growing so fast. That year, we went uh, from about 15 million in revenue to 54 million in one year. And we were really, and we were really profitable. The problem was cash flow, you know? So it was a weird situation to be in. It was a little scary too. We're like, holy crap, the business is doing so much better than it ever has. This is amazing, but we're, we're going to run out of money uh, because we have to spend money to open new offices, right? And so, so we, we, we looked for a partner. We found a, a small private equity firm in the Philippines. At the time, we had about, we, had about, um, we were growing from you know, that year from about 1,000 to 5,000 employees in, in the Philippines. And so we had a small private equity partner that invested $15 million into the business and, and was an amazing partner for us and helped get us over that cash flow hump and helped us kind of just continue to professionalize the business. So that, that was kind of the next stage was professionalizing the business. And then from there, we started to kind of open uh, our operations in other countries and start to build our, our global footprint. And so that 15 million was really just to manage cash flow, even though you were profitable, but you were able to finance your growth even after that, mostly through cash flow through profit. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've had some debt capacity as well throughout sure. the business, modest amount, but yeah, really, I mean, we, we have funded the growth and continue to through, through our own cash flow. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, such a testament in an age of raise money, raise money, raise money, burn rate, burn rate, burn rate. You guys never had a burn rate. You had some capital needs, but no burn rate. Yeah. Our, our burn rate was the first three years we didn't pay ourselves any salary. Yeah. So yeah. that was our burn rate. After three years, we, we started paying ourselves uh, $3,000 a month. So we certainly put in our time, I would say. But yeah, um, we, we were just, because we were bootstrapped for seven years, the idea of raising money and having you know to, to, to grow into um, some crazy tech valuation and all that just never, we just never re were really there. We just were really focused on building a business that would generate cash flows, that was profitable, that delivered really good service to our customers. And, and, you know, we would talk to VCs and they'd always be like, Hey, here's, here's how we can, you know, turn task us into a tech business. And they just didn't get it. Right. Like yeah. people didn't get it. And we said, look, we may never be the high flying technology company that you want us to be, but we're going to build a, we're going to build a really nice business providing great service to, to, to amazing innovative customers. Perfect. And so I know you guys then brought on a bigger private equity partner. What was it? A two, three years ago? Three? Yeah. 2018, Blackstone came in as our private equity partner. So you were three years with this Philippines partner. What was the impetus to decide to take that on? And just a side note, you've always been an awesome advisor. You've given me some key advice that has driven me in the sort of financial decisions of my business and the way you think about it. And one thing, I'm just going to repeat something you said to me right after you did your first private equity round was, you know, I don't know what advice you received, but you gave it to me, which is you have to separate yourself as an investor in your company and an operator in your company. And I was over leveraged as an investor in my company and I needed to diversify as an operator. I'm still here and I still love it. So I'm curious with that decision in 18, was that part of that too? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, it's, it's funny you say that. I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that stuck because oh, yeah. the, the, the calculus is different, right? And so you, and today I think about, okay, I'm, I'm an executive of, of the company and yep. what do I want as an executive? But also I'm, I'm an investor, right? I'm an investor and I'm an owner of this business too. And as an investor, what do I want there? And I really do try to look at it from those two lenses because you have to. And so at that time, as an investor, 
right? I'm like, wow, my entire net worth is wrapped up in task us. I've been working at this for nearly 10 years. It'd be great to get some sort of kind of personal liquidity and also set the company up for its next stage. And so that's how we kind of made the decision to, to bring on Blackstone as a private equity partner and really help us uh, get ready to become a public company, uh, which, which we wanted, which is something that we, we wanted. And so that was part of the plan. You knew that you wanted that in the past and that having a partner like Blackstone would help with that. We knew each step of the way, we knew that like, we're, you, like we think you always need to level up around your advisors, uh, your partners, your, yep. uh, your executives, like you always need to level up for the next stage. And so we knew that working with Blackstone would probably be a big challenge, uh, but we also knew it was kind of like the right medicine for the company and it would just force us to have more controls, force us to be a better run company that would eventually prepare us for the public markets. And so, yeah, how was that experience with Blackstone? Oh, it was excellent. And there's, 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 there's still, there's still amazing partners with us. Uh, they're still very large shareholders today. Oh, cool. um, and yeah, no, it was, it was, it was really fantastic. They, they pushed us in the right ways. The, they, they, they questioned our assumptions, but also it wasn't the traditional private equity play um, that some people think of where you go in, you strip away costs, you put a new management, whatever. It was very much more growth focused. And from the beginning, they said, look, we are, you know, we believe in this company. We know the space really well. We understand your differentiators around culture and your clients, and we want to support that. We're not going to tell you how to run your right. business. And, and they have, they've challenged us on certain assumptions that in a really healthy way. I say that all, seems important. Yeah, which is totally important. I mean, these yeah. guys are, they're, they're pros and they're so smart. Yeah. And so they've been, they've been amazing, amazing partners, but they've really, you know, encouraged us to continue to focus on our culture, which is when you think about Blackstone, that's not, that's not the first thing, but Blackstone itself has actually an amazing culture as a firm. Now, while Tasca's culture is quite different, the focus on people, focus on culture is, is consistent. And so that's something that we've been able to continue to do. They've questioned, you know, again, a lot of the things that we believed to be true in our business and have and have really forced us to run a better company for sure, but also have backed us. I mean, they haven't, they, you know, they haven't put anybody in. They've been they've been resources and help and they've helped us along the way in areas that, that we need. And at the end of the day, when we when we talk about something or we have disagreement, they they say, hey, you know what? Like ultimately it's uh, it's your call, it's your business. We're here, we're here to back you guys as entrepreneurs. And so that's been, awesome. it's, been it's been so encouraging and a, and a, and a really amazing partnership uh, over the past few years. That's great because yeah, you, you there's way more horror stories with PE partners and Blackstone actually has a great reputation. They're one of the juggernauts out there. But and I'm curious, you, you've talked about touched on culture a lot, and obviously it's a huge focus for you. What is it about? What do you think you do that about culture? Like, what are some things you do that differentiate you in that way? What do you mean by culture when you yeah. talk to how you take care of people? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a good question, Eric. So, so there's two components of this. There's there's what we actually do, and there's kind of how how we do it, and I'll, and I'll start there. And the first thing is, first key to culture is measure it and manage it like it's important. And most companies don't. And if you can't, I mean, we're big believers, we're data-driven, right? And so culture can be this like nebulous thing. And we decided that if we want a great culture, truly a great culture, we would need to measure and manage it. And so in 2014, as we were growing from kind of one site to many, we knew we were going from hundreds to thousands of employees. We decided that we would measure our culture, which was a, um, a survey, an anonymous survey for our employees, where they could tell us everything about different departments and their experience to task us. But ultimately, the question, how likely are you to recommend task us as a place to work to your friends and family? The NPS, um, Net Promoter Score, that, that was, we felt, it's not a perfect metric, but we felt would be a good barometer of our culture. 
And what do you think, what are things you feel are the things that actually move that? This is a debate I get in all the time. So this yeah. is a personal benefit as well. Do you, you know, you see things like the Google model of like, we're going to throw tons of perks that are kind of intangibles. You can have snacks at the office, dinners, whatever you see, you know, I've had, you know, senior HR people tell me, you know, money and a path to advancement is super important. Like what are the things that you think actually have moved or have you seen have moved that NPS, so to speak? Yeah, North. we've looked at a lot of data from our results over the past you know, six, seven years we've been doing this. And our, and our ENPS has grown from a four, right? And that's yeah. the scale is negative 100 to 100. Our first score is a four. We thought we had built this great culture. We really did, but it was a big wake-up call for us. But we focused and measured it and managed it like we do every other metric in our business. Yeah. And so we're, you know, we're, we're in the 70s now with our ENPS which is which is driven, you know, our our uh, we have a four point seven rating on Glassdoor. I mean, all these things are real. But anyway, to, to your question, what we find the number one driver of the NPS, and it's not a surprise, is how you rate your direct manager. So it's it, it comes down to leadership. There's yeah. a one to one correlation in our data around how you rate your manager and your satisfaction with your job. Yeah. No no surprise. I mean, people know the saying: people don't leave jobs; they leave managers. Yep. So what, so, so leadership development and leadership becomes the most important thing. Great. But also that's the hardest too, right? Cause like, there's no, there's no like, you know, couple of things you can do. You can't just go spend money on a nice office and, and all of a sudden yeah. it's done. Leadership development is something that's ongoing. It's something yeah. that has to become part of you know, the culture and part of what you do. And so whether that's paying for outside leadership development consultants to come in and work with your team, whether it's building in a coaching of culture where you're monitoring culture, uh, I'm sorry, monitoring coaching and make sure, you know, for example, one thing we did for a while, we built a system and then we said, look, one of the keys to management is making sure every single person out of thousands in the company, every single person needs to have a one-to-one -one with their manager every single week. And we, and we just kind of through surveying found that wasn't happening. Yeah. So we create a system to track as everyone doing one-to-ones. We say, great, let's set a goal around compliance during weekly one-to-ones across your organization. Let's drive towards that goal. We hit that. Okay. Well, did we train people how to do good one-on-ones? That's yeah. <laughs> right. And now, now let's go and let's look at quality. Yeah. And so, and it's just a slow process that over time, each quarter, we do something that we think is going to impact ENPS. We do something we create a goal around it. We put in, uh, someone in there to own it and we yeah. track it. We track it. And then at the end of the quarter, we see, hey, did that action have an influence on ENPS? And ultimately, like culture is whatever your people say it is, yeah. right? Like it doesn't, and you have to just accept that. And if someone, yeah. if the, it, it's in perception in culture is reality. Yep. So, um, so it's always a guess. You never know, you, you know, just because you do something doesn't mean the culture is going to get better, but you have to take your best shot and make sure yeah. you're, you're, you're doing it and prioritizing it. I was going to say intent and priority is also a big part of it. If you actually care about it, you can drive it in a lot of ways. It's because yeah. you know, a lot of companies don't, they focus on numbers. They don't necessarily focus on people, which right now with the way hiring is, at least in the U S I'm watching so many companies complain about it. And you know, there's, I don't know if you know Dan Price, but I think you probably know of him, the gravity payments guy. He was on this podcast too. He's the guy that gave a raise to all his employees above 70. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. So he keeps talking about like all these companies complaining about losing people. And he's like, you're losing people because you suck and they have options now. Like, you know, it's just in even my own company, which actually our turnover is a lot better this year than last, but we have turnover. And when we lose people, I don't 
like you have to take that as your own fault, whatever. And if, if it was a good opportunity for them to leave, like people leave companies, it's okay, it happens. But if it was someone you wanted to keep and they left, you made a mistake. You got to figure out like what you're doing wrong and what you can do to adjust. So I think a lot of companies miss that. So going back to it, how was the IPO experience? Dream of a lot of entrepreneurs. How, after building it and bootstrapping it a lot of the way and keeping a yeah. cash flowing business that frankly, I'm guessing with both PE funds, you never really had to answer to them because you had a profitable growing fantastic business. Now you got to deal with public sentiment. How, how was the process leading up to that afterwards, et cetera? Yeah, it was a crazy process to, to go through and really uh, surreal in many moments. But you know, we, we started working on it over a year ago and it took, took up the better part of a year. We finally debuted on the NASDAQ in June. And uh, it's been a really good story so far for us. You know, the, the, I'd say the most special things for us, one was on listing day, and we were one of the first companies to be able to do in person again, um, as kind of COVID things seemed to be settling down at the time. Yeah. And so we were able to invite not only our senior execs that you see up there ringing the bell with you, some family, and but, but we also uh, brought uh, 12 of our frontline teammates uh, from San Antonio. Nice. We wish we could have brought in people from all around the world, but but um, COVID made that made that impossible. But we did. We're, we're we're able to bring twelve of our most tenured frontline teammates to to New York. Um, some of whom had never been to New York, and so it was. I I mean, I was amazed by this experience that Nasdaq put on, and and the kind of excitement of the day, and then to be able to celebrate not just with our C team, but with the the people on the front line that make it all possible. Yeah, was really special, and to see it from their eyes as well to be part of that. What was was really awesome. You know, we we also were able to pay uh, an IPO bonus to every single one of our thirty three thousand plus employees. We're, we're in eight countries across the world, and at a time where COVID is raging through 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 many of the countries that we operate in, even 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 kind of s small bonuses like the ones that we were able to provide, we're really happy that we were able to do that. So it was just an, an awesome experience, and also you know for for our clients. We're in a space that is highly uh, acquisitive and there's lots of consolidation in the market right now. And us going public was a way to tell our clients like, hey, we're here. We're not going anywhere. Um, yeah. If anything, we'll be the consolidator, but we're not, we're not going to go get, get acquired. And uh, the reason you like task us today will remain. We get to continue to operate the company and continue to build on our culture when what makes us special. That's awesome. And I've actually never thought of that selling point with IPOing that you become the acquirer and there isn't that fear because there's always that fear with service providers. Like, is, you know, when you're using someone for years and all of a sudden they get acquired, we watch it with our competitors. When these yeah. agencies sell, it's like we, we laugh because like they're out of the way now and we're not, yeah. we're, we're in this for the long haul. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fun part. All right. So I got two more questions for you. Yeah. Number one, what's next? What's on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, you know right, what are you going to do uh, <laughs> right now for, for me in, in terms of in terms of the company? What's next is we're building our board as a public company. We are continuing to invest in our people, continuing to invest in, in technology and having uh, technology be a, a better enabler of our, of our service to, to our to our customers. You know, per, per, personally, I'm, I'm loving the Austin, Texas life, trying to sp spend as much time as possible, enjoying the, the outdoors here while it's really nice in September yeah. and, and, and October and not as hot as it was. Yeah, during I'm coming out for like 10 days in mid-October. That's the best time of year to be here. So, so yeah, just, I, I'm, I'm, I really am a big fan of what's happening here in Austin. It's just, it's, 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 it's amazing to see. So, um, nice. yeah. And last question for the aspiring anything, entrepreneur, creative, et cetera, but anyone 
What would be one piece of advice you'd give them that you either wish you got or you did get that you'd want and think it would really help someone that's just getting going? If you do not ask, you will not receive. I think that is one that I continue to live by. You know, like you, you know this journey so well, you have to ask. And sometimes the answer is going to be no. Actually, more times, more times than yes, you're going to get no's. And so we get no's all along the way. I still get a lot of no's even today. That never changes. So if people think, you know, you can have a successful company and go through IPO and then everyone's going to say yes or everyone's going to want to meet with you. Still doesn't happen. You know, you, you, you got to keep going and you got to keep asking. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, Jasper, this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. Thanks, Eric. Great to see you. You too. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month-to-month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.